Sorry, that was a bit of a shock. Sorry, everyone. Good, uh, good evening. Welcome to Conway Hall. Um, I don't know if many of you have been here before. Conway Hall is a home of uh, free thought, uh, expression, ethical thought, and occasional strange talks that I arrange under various banners. Um, this one, essentially, I've not been able to mudlark myself, but I found the topic utterly fascinating. Um, sort of somewhere between history and treasure hunting and archaeology. Um, so really, really glad for Laura to come along and give a talk for it up, up to us. Um, just so you know, the, she will Laura will speak for about 45 minutes to an hour, mainly, roughly. We'll take a comfort break. Her book is available at the back from the Word Bookshop. Um, and then uh, we'll come back after a comfort break for uh, questions and comments. Um, so please welcome Laura Maitlin. Uh, I was going to say something else. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Uh, <laughs> thank you for coming. Um, okay, so I've, I've got to work out how to use this. Gadget? Yes. No, no, we're getting the right way. This is right. Okay. Right. I want to take you all back to Victorian London. Imagine you're standing beside the river. The air's thick with smog. The river's busy. There's steamships, colliers, barges, men shouting. And the Thames is basically a moving cesspit. The smell coming off it is indescribable. And what looks like the bloated body of a large dog's rolling through the slime. The tide's rising and the foreshore is vanishing. And two bundles of rags are wading through the sludge towards a set of rickety wooden river stairs. You walk towards them and this is what you see. An old woman with a nutcracker nose and chin, which almost dipped into the filthy slush into which she peered, and dirty flesh, as well as a scrap or two of dirty linen showing through the slashes of her burst gown, over which, for warmth's sake, she wore a tippet of ragged sackcloth. She slinks off to her lair, followed by an imp bearing a rusty, crumpled colander piled with its find. Its sex is indistinguishable. It has long, mud-hued hair hanging down in a mat over its shoulders. Through the hair, one gets a glimpse of a never-washed little face, whose only sign of intelligence is an occasional glance of wicked knowingness. That was written by a man called Richard Rowe, who was a Victorian social commentator, uh, much like Henry, Menu Henry Mayhew, who was uh, the most famous uh, Victorian commentator for writing about the Victorian mudlarks. Uh, Victorian mudlarks were basically um, the very old, the young women, the society's most vulnerable. And uh, they would go down onto the foreshore of the River Thames, into all the muck and sludge, looking round for anything they could sell to survive. This was the only thing that was keeping them out of the workhouse. So they were looking for bones and rags and rope and old tools, anything they could sell. But it's not a Victorian phenomenon. In my opinion, I think that there have probably always been river scavengers. As long as there's been something to find and poor people, there have been people looking for it. Where there's muck, there's brass. But the very first mention of mudlarks was by a man called Patrick Calhoun in 1796 in his book called A Treatise on the Police of the Metropolis. Now, Calhoun was the man who uh, founded the river police. And he did this essentially to protect the West, in West India ships that were lying 
off um, in the middle of the river, laden with very valuable cargo, spices, rum, sugar, that was being preyed on by colorfully named gangs of criminals, uh, with names like game lightermen, scuffle hunters, heavy horsemen, and river pirates. The mudlarks were at the bottom of this um, band of miscreants. And they were the people who lurked around in the muck around the hulls of the ships. And they received all the bladders of rum and the packages of spices that were thrown off the, um, the ships by these, these other criminals. And they conveyed them to the taverns in Wapping and, and Rotherhithe and Limehouse. And from there, they were, they were passed on <clears throat> into the uh, black market. So the, the um, mudlarks have always been at the bottom of the pile um, until today. This is me. I'm a very modern mudlark, and I'm looking a lot happier than poor old Peggy Jones because it's my hobby. Um, I actually go down onto the foreshore in the muck and mud, um, scouting around for objects of interest, anything that's been lost, um, any ownerless objects, modern ones, but mainly the historical ones, the really old things. And um, it's, uh, I wouldn't describe myself as a treasure hunter. I probably describe myself as archaeologically curious um, and more of a history hunter. Um, I go down at low tide and um, mudlarking as well as a search for history is also my escape from the city. Um, it's, uh, I discovered the river soon after I moved to London in the early 90s. Um, I moved to London and I really had a good time. I threw myself at London but I needed an escape. I'd grown up on a farm and um, I just wanted somewhere quiet to go, to escape from, from the hustle and bustle of city life. And I found the river, and it really was a streak of wilderness running through the center of the city where I could just lose myself and, and rediscover the seasons. It's so easy to live in London and not even realize the seasons are changing. But down by the river, um, there's nature and there's fresh air. Well, fresh air as much as there can be fresh air in London. Um, there's wind and, and rain, and, and you can actually feel the seasons and, and the weather on your face. Um, and I walked for, for, for years. I just walked along it, along the river paths. And, and you can walk a very long way along the river paths. But I never thought I could actually go down onto the foreshore. For some reason, it, it, was, it was a place that was almost forbidden. Um, I didn't realize I could go down there, and I never went down there. It took me a while to even realize it went up and down, and there was a foreshore. And then one day, I was walking past some river stairs, and the tide was out, and I... I just thought, well, why not? I can go down there. I went down there, and I found a clay pipe stem. And that was the very first thing I found. And where I'd grown up, I'd grown up in a very old Tudor house with a midden in front of the, um, the back door. And um, that's where all the rubbish over the years had been thrown. And it's where I used to play around looking for bits of pottery and uh, clay pipe stems. So I knew exactly what it was when I picked it up. And it stood to reason that there was more stuff down there. And so... Instead of walking along the river, I took to going down there. And it became obsessive. It really is. Once you start doing, it's addictive. Um, and you really never know what you're going to find. Um, here's the foreshore. It is a thing of beauty. Um, it's a strange, ugly, beautiful place. I love the foreshore. Um, this is uh, out quite far out east. It's got the ubiquitous um, shopping trolley there. Um, what makes London unique is the tides and 2,000 years of intense human habitation. If, the, Amster, if the, um, the Seine in Paris was tidal, we'd be able to find all the same things, but it's not. Um, I know that 
in Amsterdam, they drained part of the canal system and they found 700,000 objects in just this fairly small space. So there's the same things are in the canal system in Amsterdam, but we're lucky in London. We get to go down there twice a day or twice every 24 hours. And you get around five to six hours, about three, two to three hours either side of low tide where you can just search. Um, the tide tables are my Bible. Um, and really the river decides when I can search it. Um, I can only go down when it's low tide, obviously. And low tide comes at all times of the day and night. It can be really early morning, it can be really late at night. Um, and the river's a different place at all these different times of the day. Um, and I spend, when I first started looking, I, I lived close to the river in Greenwich. So, so my time by the river was, was quick. I'd, I'd nip down for the odd 20 minutes or so and come back. Um, I've moved out of London since, and now I come back. For, it's, it's a whole day affair with a lot of planning. Um, and I'll spend five to six hours staring at the mud. Um, <laughs> and obviously, and uh, good tide is 0.5 and below. The really good tides, um, we have spring tides one every month and they're not called spring tides because they happen in the spring we get them every month the really really low tides happened around the equinoxes so they are in the spring and the autumn so at the moment we're on some really good low tides um, so when the spring tides and the equinoxes combine you can get some really good tides access to the foreshore can be terrifying here we are um, you can go down ladders like that but there are river stairs, and in places there are um, slipways as well, especially out around the Isle of Dogs. Um, the oldest stairs are whopping old stairs. Um, they're a really beautiful set of stairs. And most of the, the old uh, stairs are in the same place they've always been. There's always been river stairs along the river because it was a major highway, and people needed a way to get down onto it um, to travel. It was too difficult traveling um, on the roads in London, so they used the river like a road. Uh, obviously, there was trade. Um, people needed to wash their clothes, use the toilet, and that's the, what the river did for the city. The, London's only there because here, because of the river. It's a very, very important place. Um, in some places, especially in Wapping, there are these very thin alleys that take you down to the river. And these alleys are damp, dark portals to another world. Down on the river, it's a real escape from modern London and traveling down these very thin alleys. It is like time traveling, it is like going down into this, this other world. And when you come back off the river, you come up through the river wall and you're bang, you're straight back into the 21st century and it really does hit you. Obviously the um, tidal Thames is quite long. You can only really, well, you can only search the tidal Thames because that's, that's what goes up and down. It's, it, it runs from Teddington in West London out to the estuary. And depending where you say the river ends, uh, it's about 160 kilometers long. But the river doesn't really have an end. It just kind of disappears into the, into the North Sea. But that means there is a lot of foreshore to mudlark. And each area is very, very different. These two are mine. Um, <laughs> This is West London. The Thames in West London is, is gentle and green, and you can go pond dipping there. Um, it, it's a beautiful place. It's a bit posh. Um, it's really different to the Thames out east, and even more different to the Thames out on the estuary, which is a wide, bleak, muddy place um, where you can just see the rain rolling in. You can imagine um, the 
Dickens, he's, he, he set a lot of his books out there. You can imagine Magwitch crawling through the marshes off the prison hulks. The mud, it stretches for miles, but it's beautiful. It's such a silent, beautiful place. Um, and each place, you find different things. This is Rotherhithe. At Rotherhithe, they broke up the ships. And uh, lying in the, um, in the foreshore at Rotherhithe are the remains of these ships. A lot of them are the Napoleonic warships that the uh, government didn't need anymore. They were too expensive to keep. And they took them to Rotherhithe, and they broke them up and reused most of the timbers in houses. They reused them as um, gridirons to, to rest other ships on while they were mending them. And this is an old ship windlass. Um, so it would have been on, on one of the old sailing ships. There are whale bones embedded in the foreshore there. Howland's wet dock out on the peninsula was, um, was, once, was um, Greenland dock where the uh, London's whaling fleet um, left from. And it's said that they, when they're out at sea, they didn't have any wood if they needed to repair something in the ship. They'd sometimes use whale bones instead of wood to repair the ships. That might be why there's whale bones in the foreshore. It might just be that they went round to the... Uh, to the boiling houses and um, got some of the bones that the ships have brought back, and they were—they've actually lasted a lot better than the wood. So they were pretty good, uh, pretty good, pretty good steel from the uh, from the um, the whaling fleet there. So it's not hard, really, to work out the best places to go. This is central London. You'll find the most varied and wide-ranging finds in central London. This is uh, the part of the river where the Romans founded the city. Um, Queen, Queen Hythe is um, a protected area and cloud to uh, mudlark in there. But all around Queen Hythe, um, you're guaranteed to find everything from Roman through to Victorian, modern. Um, and why is it there? It's there because the pieces that you're finding are, were lost, they were dropped. Um, they're the casual losses of those people who were living and working on the river. Um, perhaps they were crossing Old London Bridge and they dropped something over the side. Maybe they lived on Old London Bridge when there were houses on it and uh, they were throwing their rubbish out of the windows. They could have been people traveling by wherry up and down, losing a, losing a buckle or dropping a shoe. Um, but some of the most evocative things I find are those that have been thrown in purposefully. These are a real connection with actual people um, from the past, the sort of people who have been forgotten by history, not the uh, kings and queens and the conquerors, the people who made it into the history books, but just the ordinary people. Like the person who lost this ring, this is a 16th century posy ring that I found. It's made of silver, and the words inside read, I live in hope, um, which is a bit sad. Um, because somebody lost hope for one reason or another, and this ended up in the river. And it's not um, unusual to find rings. Mudlarks find modern rings. People are still throwing their pain and uh, their dreams into the river. There's something about the river. It's constantly moving. It's, people think they throw something into it, and it's gone forever. It's taken away. Um, I've found torn-up photographs and love letters um, rings and jewellery that have obviously been um, treasured possessions, things that people want to get out of their lives, they throw into the river. Um, I, I thought about wearing this, 
but when I put it on my finger, it just felt wrong. There was something too personal about it. Um, it wasn't meant to be on my finger. It was meant to be in the river. Somebody didn't want it. Perhaps it slipped off their finger, but I get the feeling that they didn't want it. Um, I wear it on a, on a chain sometimes, but I never wear it on my finger. Another, um, another rather sad object are these things. They're, uh, they're worn sixpences um, bent into an S shape. Um, they were fashionable around the end of the uh, 17th and early 18th century. And it's said that young men would bend it into, a, into these, um, these uh, S shapes to hold their love in the, in the curves and present it to their intended. And she'd hold on to it um, if she liked him. I think it's, uh, it's said that sailors were particularly keen on doing this. Sailors would disappear off around the world. Maybe they didn't come back. Maybe she met someone else. Um, but a lot of them ended up in the river. It's also said that it was unlucky to keep them if the relationship broke down. I don't know. I found eight of them. So there were a lot of, uh, a lot of sad, sad girls waiting for their sailors to come home. Um, or maybe they were thrown in for luck. Perhaps they, they bent them and threw them in for luck. Um, as, a, as a bit of a nicer, nicer end to the story. Um, and who hasn't thrown a penny into uh, a body of water? I certainly have. Um, throw them into wells and rivers. Certainly the Romans did. Uh, when they pulled down the old medieval bridge, they, uh, the dredgers pulled up buckets, literally buckets full of Roman coins, where the Romans had um, thrown coins into the river as they crossed their bridge. Um, there's no actual written evidence, but it's thought there might have been a temple halfway across, and as they went across, they, they flicked a coin in um, for their gods. Um, and I've found quite a few Roman coins in one particular area, fairly close to where this... Um, where their bridge was. Um, and people have been making offerings to the river since prehistoric times. Further west, for west of um, Vauxhall, uh, quite a lot of prehistoric objects have been found, swords and axes and spears, many of them bent, ritually bent, and offered to the river. It's where the Battersea Shield, the famous Battersea Shield, came from, uh, that's now in the uh, British Museum. Um, and quite a lot have been dredged up from that area. So the river's always been a really special, sacred place um, for the people who have lived along it and beside it. Um, even the medieval times, people were throwing things into the river. This is, this is all I've found of a medieval pilgrim badge. I'm still looking for a complete one. Um, they set off on their pilgrimages from medieval London Bridge. There was a chapel dedicated to Thomas Beckett in the middle of the bridge, and people would set off on their um, pilgrimages from there. Some of them went as far as Jerusalem. Most people just went to Canterbury or maybe Walsingham in Norfolk. Uh, this badge comes from Wilsdon, um, just in North London, which was actually quite a dangerous trip. It's, it's easy these days on the train or the bus, but uh, they had to go through some... Um, some quite scary areas full of bandits to get there. Um, but they could do it in a day. And they'd buy these um, pewter badges. They were really tourist tat. Um, they were cheap. They were crudely cast. And they'd buy them and stick them on their, badges, on their hats or their cloaks or their bags to prove that they'd been on these pilgrimages. They were really good Christians. And they were bringing something of the magic of the shrine back with them. And um, when they got back to London, they threw them into the river. We know that because so many have been found in the Thames, more than anywhere else. Um, and uh, the Museum of London, if you want to see them, go to the Museum of London. They've got an incredible collection of them. They're absolutely beautiful. 
Um, and as I say, that's, that's all I found. This is, um, this is from Wilsdon. Um, you can see the little face of Mary with a rather sleepy Jesus next to her. She would have been sitting in a boat or uh, something that looked like a boat. Um, and I'm still searching for the rest of it. Um, and of course, the Thames is still a sacred river for people in London. Uh, that's the beauty of the river. It's changing with us. Um, we've, uh, we've tamed it. We've narrowed its course. We've... Um, used it as a highway, we've used it as a port, and people are still using it as a sacred river. Um, I found Wiccan spells, Islamic prayers, West African Sankofa badges, Taoist statues, but mostly I find Hindu objects. Uh, lots and lots of statues, the little lamps called deers, um, lots of coconuts, sometimes they're wrapped in the sacred thread, um, pots of rice and beans, um, and uh, for, for the Hindu community, the river is um, a substitute for the Ganges. I believe it was, um, it was blessed in the 1970s, and um, it's, it, it's well used, um, judging by the amount of objects that I find. Um, so those are the objects that were thrown in by people on purpose. They were, they were gifted to the river or thrown into the river. A lot of the things that we find are coming out of the foreshore. Now, the foreshore was a working environment. London was the busiest port in the world. And the foreshore, well, the riverbed in its natural state is a V-shape. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, the edges of the river by the, by the uh, river wall were, sh were shored up and flattened uh, to create these things called barge beds. Now here you can see a row of, um, I've got my pointer here, haven't I? You can see a, a row of piles along here. These are, this would have been a revetment. And in there, they dumped lots and lots of domestic waste. So bones and pottery, street sweeping, sweepings, spoil from further up in London. They dumped it all in, they bashed it all down, they put a layer of chalk on top, which was nice and soft, and that's where the barges rested at low tide so that they could, they could load and unload them. What's happening is, since the 1960s, of course, the ships stopped coming so far up, and nobody's looking after the foreshore anymore. So the river's reclaiming it, it's eating into it, and it's washing it away, and it's eroding it. And since 2000 particularly, um, when the Clipper service began, the river's becoming more and more busy. So the wake of all these boats is just eating away at it and exposing all these wonderful objects that have been lying in there for centuries. And it's a double-edged sword because it's also washing away a lot of valuable archaeology. There's a medieval jetty at Greenwich that's washing away. On every tide, takes a little bit more. But it's also washing out all sorts of things for mudlarks to find. Um, and I search by looking very closely. I spend a lot of time kneeling down. Um, and the foreshore is constantly changing. It can change overnight. It can stay the same for the longest time and then change overnight. So many mudlarks visit the same place over and over again. We watch it change and we learn to read the foreshore. You learn where the objects wash, are likely to wash up. You learn where it's eroding away, where you're likely to find more things. Um, coins tend to stick to sand. They wash up against posts. Uh, small metal objects all wash together. The river sorts 
its load. So it'll sort the light things together, the bones. It'll sort the pins and the, and the, um, and the metal objects together. Um, and you learn, you learn to read that. Um, and there are hunters and gatherers on the foreshore. Um, I'm, I'm more of a gatherer. I, uh, I only collect what's left on the surface, what the river chooses to leave me. I don't dig, I don't scrape, I don't use a metal detector. Um, I only take what the river chooses to leave on that tide, what's there on one tide and gone on the next. Um, and what you're looking for is anything that's not natural. Nature doesn't make straight lines or perfect circles. And so once you get what's called your iron, um, you start to notice these perfect circles standing out. You notice the straight lines. Um, and that's what... Uh, That's what you're looking for. And it, it's something that you can't be taught. It's something that you either... Some people pick it up instantly. Some people are really good at it. Uh, some people never pick it up. They just get bored before they even start finding things. Most people, it comes with time and patience. Certainly with me, I just spent a lot of time staring at mud. Um, I even got to the point where I threw some pennies down on the, on to the foreshore to see if I could see them, to get my eye in for coins because it took me so long to find them. But once I found my first coin, they started coming. And once you do get your eye in, it's amazing what you can find. All of these I found just sitting on the surface. I didn't use a metal detector, I didn't need it. Um, and that's part of the fun for me, is not knowing what you're going to find. You know, some days I'll come back with absolutely nothing, but I'll have spent five hours in my own head getting away from everything, and I'll come back completely refreshed. Um, but I usually come back with something. And once you get your eye in, you can spot the most incredible things. I don't know if you can see here um, what we're looking at. These are pins, the famous foreshore pins. And the river washes these together in quite large groups. And these date from between around 1400 and 1800. Every single one is handmade. Um, and there are so many because, simply because everybody used them. Everybody was pinned into their clothes. Buttons were expensive. They didn't have zippers and poppers, obviously. People were pinned and laced into their clothing. Um, and the pinning industry was huge in this country. It was so... It was huge, but we still had to import pins. Pins were made in Gloucestershire and London. They were the two main pinning centres, but we also imported them from France. Elizabeth I's pinner was called Robert Careless, and in 1565, he supplied 16,000 great farthingale pins, 20,000 middle farthingale pins, 20,000 great velvet pins, 58,000 small velvet and hat pins, and that gives you some idea. That was just for her and her court. And those elaborate ruffs took hundreds of pins just to pin them together. They pinned children into swaddling and corpses into shrouds. And as they walked, they must have just shed them because they are everywhere. They're tiny pins that were used to pin silk and lace and great thick pins that were used to pin um, thick wool. Some of them are bent, so you can imagine the curses as they were bent, as someone was trying to force them through some, some cloth that was too thick. Some of them are still shiny. Um, but the thing I like about them is that they're so ordinary. You wouldn't find these in most museums. But they're so ordinary, and they, they represent to me the ordinariness of the foreshore. 
what we find there is just rubbish, ordinary people's rubbish. The sort of things that people probably didn't miss. Although pins weren't cheap, it's where the phrase pin money comes from. Uh, it was the amount of money that was given to women by their husbands or fathers to buy the, the, the pins that was needed for the household. Um, but pins are just, they're, they're magical things and I could wang on about them for any, for, forever. But um, I love them, holding a pin and knowing that you're the first person to hold that pin since some Tudor lady tried and failed to push it through her... Her farthingale is, is an incredible feeling. Obviously, the oldest things that we find are fossils. They tell the story of the river itself. Before land appeared and the river was a warm tropical sea. Um, these are uh, sea urchins, otherwise known as pixie helmets, fairy loaves, chalk eggs, and eagle stones. Um, they're said to sweat before a storm, cure sickness prevent lightning, and stop the milk from curdling. I don't know if that's true, but we always have one in the dairy at home, and the milk never curdled. <laughs> Pottery. Pottery is one of the most common things you'll find. These are Roman pots, complete Roman pots that were found um, on the river, lying on the surface. Um, these are a really good example of here today, gone tomorrow. If we hadn't got to these before... Um, very long, they would have just smashed up into pieces. Um, pottery, every period of time is represented by pottery on the foreshore, from prehistoric to Ikea plates. Um, and they are from ordinary houses and taverns, and they were used by ordinary people to eat their meals and drink their, drink their beer out of. And obviously what people are looking for are these. these are, this is a Bellamine the top of a bellamine. Now, bellamines were bottles that were imported from Germany, stoneware bottles in the 16th and 17th centuries primarily. Um, and they had this wonderful face on, and each face is different. And when you see one of these faces staring back at you from the mud, it really does, uh, it is really lovely. Um, now, they were imported from Germany and Holland. Um, sometimes they were empty, sometimes they were filled with wine, and they were used in taverns and homes. And in Germany, they were called Bartman jugs. The bearded face is, is that of the wild man, who's uh, common in, in folklore throughout Europe. In this country, it's said, I don't know if it's true, they were called Bellamines, after Cardinal Bellamine, who was an Italian um, cardinal who was staunchly anti-alcohol and also Catholic, which was on the wrong side of the religious divide at a time of turmoil. And it's said that the Protestants enjoyed smashing these just to see his face in pieces, um, which might explain why we find so many of, uh, shards of these on the foreshore. Or it might just be that simply there were so many and people were using them and dropping them, and that's why there's so much. The blue and white pottery is, the, is very common, and that's what most people start to collect. When you first start mudlarking, I can almost guarantee that one of the first bits of pottery you pick up will be blue and white. It's mostly Victorian. Sometimes it's Delft, which is older. Um, it's very, very pretty, um, and I certainly have an awful lot of it. Um, another very common object are clay pipes. Um, I don't know if you can see the clay pipe stems here, but they are everywhere on the foreshore impossible to miss. And I found clay pipes and clay pipe stems from Teddington right out to the estuary. Um, they are possibly the most common things to find. Um, they would have ended up in the 
river in the rubbish that was dumped there. They would have been thrown out of taverns, off wherries. Anyone smoking along the river um, might have dropped or thrown them in. Um, people bought them ready stuffed with tobacco. Um, I've heard it was to avoid some kind of tax. I'm not quite sure. Um, and contrary to popular belief, they were used more than once. Um, our ancestors were anything but um, wasteful. And they would have used them until they were too hot to smoke, and then they probably threw them away. They put them into fires to burn out the residue inside so they could keep smoking them. So sometimes the ones you find are black from the fires they were in. Um, and there were so many simply because everybody smoked. They thought it was good for you. It was fashionable. Um, they smoked while they buried plague victims because they thought it would keep the dangerous miasmas away. Um, in 1614, a pamphleteer claimed there were 7,000 tobacco houses, which was more than all the ale houses and taverns in London, which shows you how popular it was. And they were said to drink tobacco rather than smoke it. Um, you can date pipes by their size. The middle one is the smallest one. That dates from around 1580, when Walter Raleigh first brought tobacco over from the New World, and it was expensive. Um, it soon caught on, it became very fashionable. Demand grew and they grew more tobacco and they shipped more of it over and it got cheaper. And so the bowls got larger and larger and larger um, until they became quite large. The largest ones there are around the sort of mid 1700s. Um, the small ones are called fairy pipes because they're so small. When people were finding them in the 19th century, they genuinely thought they'd found the Pixies smoking <laughs> apparatus. They didn't understand why they were so small. Um, and some of them are very beautiful. They're decorated. Um, we find them with uh, coats of arms on, the coats of arms of the various um, guilds and taverns and... Um, we also find novelty pipes. There's this, this is a Victorian basket pipe. Uh, sometimes you find them with tooth marks in the stem at the end from where they were clamped between someone's teeth. And they're lovely and black inside from the last smoke. Um, and it's things like that that make these objects so special. They're, they're, a, they're a moment captured in time, that final smoke, the last person to have that pipe in their mouth. And it's these personal objects that are really special. Uh, this, and there's nothing more personal than a shoe. This is a Tudor child's shoe that I pulled out of the mud complete. Um, and the creases, you can still see the creases across the front. And when I pulled it out, you could see the faint impression of the last wearer's footprint. And it brings to mind all sorts of stories. How did they lose it? Did it was it pulled off as they ran across the mud? Did it fall off as they jumped into a wherry? Were they being bullied? Did someone take it off and throw it in the river for a joke? I'm quite sure they got a clip round the ear when they hobbled home with one shoe. Uh, this one's broken at the end. Their toes gone through the end, so maybe it had just worn out. They didn't want to wear it anymore, and it got thrown away. Um, it took me two years to get this conserved. The, the museum didn't want it. They've got too many shoes in the Museum of London. Every time they dig into the, into the soil, in London, they seem to find a shoe. And they're so well-preserved because it's, it's, it's wet. Um, just like the mud, it's, it's anaerobic. It, it creates this perfect environment to preserve things. So the, the Thames mud conserves leather beautifully. It, it conserves uh, wood and bone. And all these organic uh, materials are preserved as beautifully as the day they fell in. Um, 
so I eventually got this conserved at Cardiff University by a student um, after I'd gone all around the houses via uh, the Mary Rose Museum, who also didn't have enough money to conserve it. Um, obviously, I reported it. I report all objects of historic interest, um, anything over 300 years old. Under the terms of my license, you do need a license to go mudlarking. Anyone can get one. Uh, it's from the Port of London Authority. They're the uh, landowners. They own the foreshore. Um, anyone can apply for one of those. They last for three years. Um, and under the terms of your license, you have to report your fines. There are objects you also have to legally report. Uh, human remains is one of them. This, this chap um, was found quite recently um, out on the estuary. It's likely he was a prisoner from one of the prison hulks. Um, we collected up the other bones that we found alongside and uh, we buried them in a shallow grave which we marked and took the GPS and called the police because we didn't know how high the tide would come in. We didn't want it all washing away again. The police have collected him up and he's now with the uh, coroner um, and they will ascertain whether it's old remains or whether it's, um, it's part of something more modern. Um, I haven't heard anything yet but they did come and take my DNA, uh, which is a bit concerning. Um, we might find something strange out about my ancestors. Um, something else that we need to report are uh, anything to do with crime. So this is the barrel of a gun. It's still, got the, um, it's still got the bullets in it. They have filed off the serial number and cut off the barrel and the handle. Uh, that was re also reported to the police. Uh, bombs. There are bombs in the uh, river. It was a very soft landing for the bombs that landed during the Blitz, and uh, a reasonable number have survived, and they're getting older and corroding. Uh, grenades have been found in the river. They're very unstable. This is a fuse from, um, from a uh, uh, World War II um, anti-aircraft missile, I think, and uh, it's inert, but I did accidentally take a, a bomb home on the train um, once. <laughs> not realizing that it wasn't quite that inert and um, threw it back in the river pretty quick. Um, so if you see anything that looks like that, don't touch it. <laughs> don't take it home on the train. Call the police and uh, they'll send the army out to deal with it. Um, and finally, treasure. You have to legally report treasure. Uh, this is a Tudor uh, lace aglet. Um, and it's part of a mini hoard that's slowly coming to the surface on a part of the river I shall not name. Um, and well over 100 pieces have been found now. I found this lace end. Um, it's beautiful, filigree. Um, it qualifies as treasure because it's over 300 years old and it's made of gold. Anything made of precious metal, a certain percentage of precious metal, is quite complicated, but simply put, um, has to legally be reported as treasure. It then goes to the coroner. Um, museums are given the op opportunity to buy it or you can donate it. Um, I donated this to the Museum of London. They're collecting as much of this mini hoard as they can and they hope to put it on display soon. Um, the strange thing about this hoard is that every single piece is either broken or squashed in some kind of way, uh, which has led people to believe that it could have been a bag of scrap gold um, that was dropped somehow by someone and it's gradually coming to the surface and... Um, we go through phases where a lot, lot's found and then nothing. There's one lady and she 
we'll spend five hours literally going through the grains of sand with a, with a tweezer looking for pieces and she's found lots and lots of bits. Um, some of them, you know, even as small as the, a link from a chain. Um, she's dedicated, very dedicated. Um, so here are some of the things, some of the objects that I've found over, over the years. Um, I found so much, it's hard to go into them all, so I, I've, I've just got a small selection here. Um, so this, this is a, um, a Victorian love token. I've yet to find how, who, out who Jay Tweedy was. Um, it's anyone's guess how it ended up in the river. I don't know, but it was quite uh, common for people to make these cheap love tokens um, and give them to their intended, a bit like the sixpences. Uh, I found that last week, a nice little piece of um, Westerwald pottery um, from, Ger from Germany again, uh, probably 17th century. Um, toys. Toys are really evocative, finding these little broken toys that um, have been lost by their previous owners who have grown up. Um, had lives and most likely no longer around. Uh, little bone dice. This one could be Roman, judging by the uh, style of the dots. This is unusual. This is um, this originally the museum thought that was Roman glass. It turns out it's medieval Islamic glass from Spain, uh, which is um, which is not unusual in Spain, but very unusual in in London. They've only found a couple of others, um, and so they're quite interested in that. Uh, this is a token from the Haberdashers, Guild of Haberdashers. This is a giant barnacle from the Pacific. <laughs> now this would have arrived either in ballast in a trade ship or even stuck to the bottom of, um, of one of the ships. And uh, I mean, it's massive. I've never seen a barnacle that big. Uh, here's the glass eye I saw staring back at me, which really freaked me out. <laughs> it really was like, oh, Father Tim's looking back at me. Um, but it's beautiful. It's a work of art. It's handmade. It's glass. It's even got little um, blood vessels on it. And um, production of these went rocketed after the end of the First World War because so many people had their eyes damaged during the war. I don't know how old that is. Who knows how it ended up in the river? Basically, if it fits down a toilet, it has a chance of ending up in the river. Um, the river, there's a lot of raw sewage still goes in, in the river and you do find some really quite personal objects um, as a result. This is a snow baby. Um, could have sat on top of someone's Christmas cake. Um, he's rather sweet. Um, this is another recent find. This is a little uh, acorn button. I think it's a button. Um, I'm going to show that one to the museum. Uh, these are frozen charlottes. These were popular in the 19th century. They were baked into cakes and they were bought as penny toys at fairs, and uh, most little girls would have sometime played with one. Um, I'm not sure if anyone swallowed the really small ones, and that's how they ended up in the river, but um, <laughs> I have certainly found a few of those. These are, um, these are the uh, Roman flagon necks. This is a little uh, Georgian fob seal, and again, back to the, my love for pins. That's how I display my pins in a little, um, Cushion and uh, that is a Charles I silver penny. Uh, it's been drilled, it's got a hole in it. Uh, they've carefully avoided drilling through the face of the king, which um, makes me wonder whether they were uh, royalists. Uh, perhaps they wore it on a string around their neck secretly. Maybe somebody found it and ripped it off and threw it in the river. 
before banks, poor people would sew their, their coins into their clothes. Um, and so that's why a reasonable number of coins have holes in them, because they would sew them into their clothes for safekeeping. Uh, a Staffordshire, head of a Staffordshire uh, figurine, these were cheap. They were, came around, uh, came about when people started to have a little bit more money. Poor people could afford something, to, something pretty for their houses to go on the mantelpiece. And they could afford these, these Staffordshire figurines. Sometimes they were so cheap they weren't even pa painted on the back. Uh, and this is a uh, medieval um, roof tile with a cat. If you look very carefully, there's a cat's paw print with a dog's paw print quickly after it. So um, <laughs> I don't think that the tile maker was very pleased when the uh, dog chased the cat straight through his yard of freshly made tiles. Human teeth. I've got a collection of these. I know that sounds weird, but I find them fascinating because... Um, this one's got a hideous cavity, which means it's a later tooth because people, uh, until the 16th century, ordinary people couldn't afford sugar. It wasn't really around very much, and their teeth were in much better condition. But they wore down because the, the bread that they ate was stone ground, and so the, the bits of stone and grit in the bread uh, wore their teeth down, but their teeth were beautifully white. After that, they just went like this. This was probably pulled out, um, I would imagine. Um, most of the teeth I have have got these sort of um, cavities, um, tobacco and sugar. Um, we've got tiny, tiny seed beads. Um, I've got quite a collection of beads from the foreshore, trade beads, a very early trade um, chevron bead from the 16th century. And they tell a sad tale because the trade beads, particularly the drawn cane trade beads were made in Venice or Bohemia um, and they were destined for a, uh, West Africa uh, for the slave trade. So they set off from London with their beads. It was part of a triangular trade. They went to West Africa. They traded objects and beads for people. They took the people to the Caribbean to grow the sugar that they then brought back to London. Uh, West India Keys was built on the money from this trade. Um, and in the foreshore, you can find the moulds that the, uh, the sugar was made into, the um, sugar loaves, the, 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 the triangular sugar loaves, um, and the moulds that they made are in the foreshore. The beads that they, they bought the slaves with are in the foreshore. Tate and Lyle still has its, its factory on the river. Uh, the Tate Modern and Tate Britain was, um, began with, uh, was, began Mr. Tate from Tate and Lyle, donated his art, art um, collection to start those, those collections, the, the art galleries. I mean, there's so much sugar in the river, in all ways, and of course the teeth as well. Um, <laughs> uh, these are wooden combs, they're made of boxwood, uh, they're very similar to the ones that they found on the Mary Rose. And um, it's incredible that they survive, but boxwood is very hard, it's very tight grain wood, and um, it survives really well, and it dries out really well. A lot of wood splits and cracks as it dries, but boxwood, it dries out brilliantly. Um, this is a little pewter dripping pan. It dates from the 17th century. It's a toy. Um, and the toys, these sort of toys that have been found in the river have actually changed people's idea of, of childhood. Um, a lot have been found in the Thames, and... Um, 
people now realise that children way back when did have a childhood, they did have toys, people bought them things. Um, this, is, this is Roman sword uh, scabbard end. Um, it's made of ivory. It would have been for an auxiliary soldier. And only one complete one's been found. Uh, this is the one that I found on the foreshore. Um, it was in beautiful condition until it went to the museum and somebody dropped it. Um, that's the good side. The other side's been glued back together again. Mm. Um, and this is another little clay pipe. Uh, it's the, uh, the Dick Whittington pipe. It would have had a little cat on it. The cat's broken off. Um, so, having seen all these objects here, I've given you a glimpse into the river's trove. You might be asking yourself the same question I ask myself as I'm looking at all these things. I'm staring at the mud and I'm seeing all these objects come out. What are we leaving behind? What of us are we leaving for mudlarks of the future? Simple. Plastic. The river is the cleanest it's been in living memory, but it still carries a heavy load. It might look clean, but the rubbish is just below the surface. There's a lot in the media about plastic in the oceans. But think about where it comes from. It's coming out of our rivers. In the river, in the Thames, the light stuff washes up out on the estuary. In Hammersmith, there is an entire island made of wet wipes. Our rubbish is actually changing the geography of the river in a way that our ancestors hasn't. Our ancestors' rubbish it's made of glass and wood and leather, all the things that will break down harmlessly and essentially go back to where it came from, that it's harmless. What we're leaving behind is eternal. It'll be here forever. And that's what we're leaving behind for future mudlarks. Thank you, Laura. Hello. Oh, yep, that is working. Thank you, Laura. We're going to take a, a 15 minute sort of breather now. Um, we do have plastic cups of water outside. Please dispose of them carefully. Um, Laura's book is available at the back um, from the Word Bookshop and you might be persuaded to sign possibly um, once you get a copy. Uh, we're gonna, so back in 15 minutes for questions and comments and I will talk about that then. Thank you. Hey everyone. Hi everyone. Sorry, um, apologies for those of you queuing for a book signing. I didn't realise there'd be such a huge queue. So would you mind, would you, would you mind remembering where you are? <laughs> um, yeah, this person is at the front. Wave at them. You're at the front. There we go. Um, and we'll have like a 10, 15 minute Q&A um, and then we can go back to the signing. So apologies and thank you. Your books will get signed, I promise. Um. Oh, 
very professional innovation there. So um, I, I will now travel amongst you with the um, portable microphone. If you do have a question, please speak directly into it like this. Um, questions, brief questions and comments are welcome because I'm sure a lot of people have got questions to ask. I hope everyone's listening. Yep, yep. Um, just uh, please keep it brief, please keep it on topic, um, not too much autobiography. Obviously, amazing things you've dug out of mud by a river are, is completely acceptable, and I'm going to come over to you now. As I say, have them hold the microphone like this so we can hear you, because if you do it like this, then we can't hear you so much. Cheers, thank you. Hi, Lara. Um, can you, um, could you tell us a bit about cleaning up things uh, from you know for, for sort of hygiene but also sort of you know preserving them any any advice <laughs> thank you um yeah i mean i don't i don't clean things that much i like things a bit um stained uh i would say i clean i clean the mud off uh with just water sometimes with a bit of fairy liquid don't put don't put your pipes in bleach because they'll just dissolve don't put them in the dishwasher because they'll fall apart i know people have done that um, I just I just clean with a toothbrush very gently mostly. Um, with regards um, irons, the really difficult one. Even uh, at the, I spoke to the Mary Rose uh, Trust about preserving iron, and the problem is that it sort of it just starts to explode and and fall apart. And the only thing that I found you can do, and and a and a professional conservationist said this is okay. Uh, spray it with uh, clear lacquer. Um, sort of uh, brush off, use one of those Dremels to get off as much of the um, rust as you can. First of all, bash it with a hammer, get most of it off. Use a Dremel to get as much off as you can, get it right down to the metal if you can, and then spray it with lacquer just to stop it from, um, from rusting again. And, you, and I've successfully done some iron bits like that. Um, coins, if they're, if they're really encrusted, you can get a mobile phone charger. Um, <laughs> Take off the, the end and split it and put crocodile clips on, and then you can create this kind of electrolysis thing. You can do electrolysis on it. Be really careful, though, because um, if it's made of silver, it gives off a noxious gas. So do it with a window open and don't breathe it in. It'll be, it'll be all right. It'll be fine. So um, and be really careful, though, because you can dissolve things. So are you suggesting uh, gassing and electrocuting yeah. the yeah. audience? Yeah, just be careful. It's fine. You, you, it's are fine. Our, you are our type of speaker. I'm still here, so yeah, it's this is fine. True. Just be careful of the object, though. Don't zap it too much. Um, and um, as, in terms of um, wood, the best way I found of preserving wood is to wrap it really tightly in cling film and then put it at the bottom of your freezer. And I, I've got loads of stuff in my freezer at the moment. And just leave it there for as long as you can, years if you can. And it kind of does this a crude freeze-dry, basic freeze-drying. And, and that's that, I found that quite successful. Mm. Leather's really hard. Um, I've tried lanolin. That didn't work. Um, the best thing I've found for leather is the stuff I use on my sofa. Um, with shoe soles, I just squish it down because if you don't flatten it, it curls and twists. So just flatten it really um, with something really heavy, and that's the best thing for. And then actual actual leather shoes, so stuff for leather sofas was really good actually. Um, that's that's so far that's as far as I've got. <laughs> okay. Any other questions, comments, queries? Right, you're right here. Then I'll get to you too. Is there something that you haven't found yet that you're really hoping to find? Yes, medieval pilgrim badge. <laughs> <laughs> That's really easy. I've, I haven't found one yet, and I go out every time convinced I'll find one, and I never do. 
Um, so yeah, one day I will. And, and I've also said when I find one, I'll give up, but I don't think I will. <laughs> Hi, how do you go about dating your finds? How do I go about dating? Yeah. Um, I have a library of very obscure books, um, which are useful. Um, but mainly, there's a thing called the Portable Antiquities Scheme database. And the Portable Antiquities Scheme is this in incredible project where they're trying to record all the objects that are found by metal detectorists and fields and rivers and beaches all over the country. And they're trying to make a record of all these objects before they just disappear and where they're found and what they are. And it's free, and you can go on there, and that's brilliant for recording. Also, because I record my objects, the Finds Liaison Officer I record with, and they're the people who record stuff on the Portable Antiquity Scheme database, um, they're brilliant. They know lots, and if they don't know, there's lots of people at the Museum of London that can help. So, um, And also, my Facebook page is often quite useful as well. <laughs> there's lots of people who have lots of obscure knowledge that they share, which is fantastic. Um, you told us about the bomb that you took home and wished you hadn't. Mm. Is there anything you've left on the foreshore that you wished you had taken home? Yes, well, I'm sure I've left lots of things because a lot of mudlarking is knowing what you're looking at because if you don't know what you're looking at, you know, you're just going to step over it. Um, so that's another thing that comes with time, just learning what, what's worth picking up and what's not. I know, I've probably left lots of stuff, but I know for sure that I left a really nice urethral syringe on the foreshore. Um, and it sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But it, it's made of pewter, and it would have been used to administer mercury, probably, possibly by a, a sailor, but it was said that a, a night with Venus meant an, a lifetime with mercury because that was the standard cure, and they would administer it directly up the... Um, with these syringes and they're quite old you know they're very old and um, you know, it's fantastic and really interesting history a bit revolting and that's why I left it I looked at it and thought that doesn't look very nice and I left it there not knowing how old it was or the story behind it and I wish I picked it up because I haven't found another one since so uh, I know I left that there do you use a metal detector and and if so do you do any digging no, neither. I don't use a metal detector, um, and I, I don't dig, and I don't scrape. Everything that I've, I've found was lying on the surface or maybe just starting to erode. I don't, I don't, I don't think you need to, um, to be honest. I mean, I, I, it must be quite hard using a metal detector on the foreshore because there's so much scrap. Uh, there's so many nails and, and rubbish there. Um, I, I, I don't. You don't need to. Uh, part of... Part of the joy for me is that sort of that doing something and not doing something, letting your mind just go while you're just looking, um, and th that's part of the joy for me. And I think being plugged into a something that beeps all the time drives me mad. So, so no, I don't. No. If there's some of us today who now want to become mudlarks, is there any kind of society group or organisation who can give us some help and guidance? You know, when we're first out there on the foreshore. Is there a group, Society of Mudlarks? There is... Um, there, are, there, are, there are tours that you can go on with two organisations in particular, Thames Explorer Trust and Thames Discovery. If you go with them, you don't need to have a licence. You can use their licence. You won't be able to take anything away, but it's a good start. They'll you know, take you down there and sort of show you the ropes a bit. Um, 
In terms of groups, uh, there is the Society of Mudlarks, but you need to be invited along to it. Um, I started my Facebook page as a page for people to meet and to, um, you know, maybe find a mudlarking buddy. Um, and that's quite a nice place to go um, and meet people. A lot of people mudlark for, because they want to do it for solitude, really. It's um, not, you don't see big groups of people going around doing it. Um, so you might be able to find another buddy. But to be honest, it's, it's quite safe and it's quite um, easy to do on your own. And if you're in central London, there'll always be someone else around. And people are usually quite friendly if you want to chat to them. Um, and as I say, it's just something that comes with time and patience. So you were talking about the mudlarking being an obsession for you. So what does your family think about it? Uh, they are Do very, they cope? <laughs> uh, they're very understanding. <laughs> um, it's, it's not... Um, my kids are desperate to get down there, but they're only seven. So they're not going down there until they're a little bit older because... There's raw sewage. It's a bit mucky. Uh, but they will go down there eventually. You know, kids love mudlarking. I mean, all the bones and stuff. It's really a great place for them to learn about history. Um, uh, my wife tolerates it and clears up the mess. And so that's all I can ask, really. It's not to everyone's taste. Um, most, people are, most people are fascinated by it. So it's... Um, no, it's... it's, it's uh, yeah, it's my quiet obsession. I can just, I disappear off to the spare room with my trays of fines for a Saturday afternoon and I'm just, I'm happy doing that. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> Anybody else with any questions, comments? Of course. I've got to say, so far this has been the best Q&A ever with succinct on-topic questions <laughs> and only mild peril. Hi, Laura. I'm ever so good at finding China. Not just blue and white, but obviously lots of blue and white and, and slipwear and stuff. So how many more hours have I got to do before I start finding things that aren't China? <laughs> I, guess, I guess my question is how many hours do you think you spent before you actually got your eye in? God, that's really, that's really hard. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been doing it like, properly mudlarking for probably about 15 years or so. Um, and I, I go for hours and hours at a time. So I put, I've put the time in. Um, it's, oh, I mean, to be honest, if I, if I went out with you and showed you where the pins were, you'd start seeing them everywhere. Yeah. He can show you where the pins are. Once you find the pins, that's when you find the smaller metal things because they, they, they sort of wash together. Um, I don't know. It's really personal. I don't know. I mean, you found pipes, presumably. Oh, yes. Yeah, you see? Well, you... I, yeah, I don't get that excited by it. Well, I, yeah. I find those are stems. Yeah. Definitely I'll make them into a mosaic. Yeah. Right. One day you'll find a coin and, and somehow it imprints and you'll start finding them and you'll start finding other I, things. Hmm. Have you got? Uh, I can find slipwear. Right. Yes. Yeah. Have you got knee pads yet? Yes, I have. But I mm. Yeah. Kneel down. Just concentrate on a very small area. Kneel down, and then that's quite a good way to start seeing the smaller things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Find an area that's eroding, the, where it's really dark grey. Bite the bullet. Use the knee pads. No. <laughs> Join us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that, use the new pads. On that, boil the wisdom. Um, I'll turn you there. 